0: Welcome to American Building, a weekly recorded show whose mission is to share an alternative perspective of what we build in America and why. Together, we discover how the work of the real estate industry connects to every American. In season two, we focused on how buildings changed as a result of the pandemic. In this season, we're revisiting conversations from previous seasons to see where Americans put their heads down at night. Together, we will discover the many definitions of home across the New York City metropolitan area, which includes over 23 million Americans. Each week, we'll visit a new building and explore complex and confusing issues related to housing access to see what they can teach us about ourselves and our country. We'll meet those who work to develop in thoughtful and impactful ways, who build neighborhoods to be more sustainable, affordable, accessible, or inclusive, who labor to create thriving communities and transform the lives of generations to come. Through their stories, we will humanize often polarizing topics. Profound, surprising, and hilarious. This show is for developers and builders with boots on the ground, for innovators trying to find ways to improve our industry, for the policymakers and public employees, and for any person who has walked by a building and wondered why. And now your host, award-winning architect turned developer and startup founder, Atif Kader AIA.
1: This is American Building, and I'm your host, Atif Kader. I'm the founder of Commonplace. Join me as I take a drive by the skylines and strip malls, crosswalks and rail crossings, balconies, buildings, and boroughs to discover a new generation of housing. Let's build common ground. In this episode, you will learn about the term workforce housing and how it is used. Also, you'll join me in hearing about Chatham-on-Maine a garden-style multifamily complex in Chatham, New Jersey. Workforce housing is a type of unregulated affordable housing that typically serves middle-income workers like teachers, healthcare providers, and retail clerks. These are folks who usually are not eligible for regulated affordable housing either through voucher programs like Section 8 or through units subsidized by the Low-Income Housing Tax Credit Program. As real income growth has flatlined since the 1980s for this category of people, housing has become relatively more expensive for them. The global financial crisis and the pandemic exacerbated the issue of housing affordability because of rapid inflation combined with tanking housing production across the nation. The percentage of middle-income workers who could afford market-rate housing has declined creating the need for unregulated affordable housing like workforce housing. For example, in San Diego in 2021, 19 workforce housing units were created with city subsidies at the same time that 10,163 market rate units were built. In a great article for the Brookings Institution, researchers Tiffany Ford and Jenny Schutz provide a primer on workforce housing. I want to highlight a few points from their article. In well functioning housing markets, middle income families shouldn't need subsidies. The term workforce housing is not only imprecise, it is controversial. Many poor households who receive federal housing subsidies are employed, so why are those subsidies not considered workforce housing? The linked to the article is in the show notes. In this episode of American Building, I am sharing an edited version of the conversation I had in November 2021 with developer and investor, Peter Brosens. Peter is a founding partner at Stoller Capital, a New Jersey-based firm focusing on developing in the greater New York City area and providing preferred equity nationally. Prior to Stolar Capital, he worked at JBG Companies in Washington, DC. He is a graduate of Columbia University, just like me. Enjoy the conversation. And if you are interested in more stories related to housing and impact, visit the Commonplace website. Commonplace is the company I founded to make it easier to finance impactful real estate projects. Thank you so much for being here with us, Pete. Thanks so much for having me, Atif. Yeah, it's great to be here. Absolutely. Who all are the team members at Stoller Capital, and how did you meet them, or how did you come to them if they weren't your siblings?
2: <laughs> yeah, no, I, only one of them is my sibling. So Kyle Petrelli, who started mm-hmm. Stoller with me, is my best friend growing up in high school and college. He was actually my best man at my wedding. Mm-hmm. He. Are you from Maryland, or where are you from? No, I'm from Westchester County so about an hour north of the ah, city. okay, you're from New York, oh, okay. Yep. Yeah. And so he went the investment banking route, uh, mm-hmm. J.B. Morgan, then he went to business school actually at Maryland. We started in July 2012, and the other team members came naturally. You know, Joe Carroll, very, very good friend of mine, same analyst class at J.B.G. with me. So mm-hmm. so I we worked alongside each other for four years. He went to Warden Business School after... Mm-hmm. Uh, JBG, then worked with related for a couple of years, and then I twisted his arm to come join us as a partner, uh, <laughs> and, 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 and he's been fantastic. Kyle Land and Joe is more of a CIO and spearheads the acquisitions for this pref and mez fund that I'm sure mm-hmm. we'll talk more about later yeah. on the podcast. Kyle Land was uh, an intern, and he's now a partner of the firm. Mm-hmm. You know, we had about 20 interns, a lot of really smart guys and gals from Columbia and NYU. Mm-hmm. And Kyle was just a really, really hardworking, really trustworthy guy that kind of earned my respect very early on. And he essentially now runs asset management and construction management. And then John, my youngest brother, very, very sharp at uh, underwriting all of our deals. So he's a very, very strong financial analyst uh, that's been with us for five, six years now. So the, it's a team of five of us. You know, we're lean I think as we grow these two platforms that we're currently working on, that, that again, that we'll talk about more later on, mm-hmm. the team will naturally have to grow, uh, but we're trying to keep it as lean as possible right now.
1: Excellent. So I think that might be a good a point to transition to the project that we are discussing today, which is Chatham on Main. So talk to us about the city of Chatham and this specific site.
2: So just to back up uh, maybe a little bit, one of the routes that we just talked about is mm-hmm buying value-add mixed-use or multifamily properties and repositioning them through either asset management, construction management, or property management. Mm-hmm. And asset management really encompasses both of those. And uh, we bought a couple of smaller properties in Chatham. We own about five properties in Chatham.
1: And Chatham is basically a city in northern U- yeah, Chatham, New Jersey. Yeah, Chatham
2: is an affluent town about 45 minutes west of Manhattan. Got it. Okay. Uh, phenomenal schools. Train lines. Train lines. 50 minutes into, you know, into Manhattan. But there's also just a lot of employment in and around Chatham. Mm -hmm. And the goal of this business is to find institutional size assets and enter into a typical GPLP relationship with one Mm -hmm. institution because so much of our previous business has been raising money from, you know, started very early on with friends and family and then it became and then expanded fairly quickly. So now we have about 100 Mm -hmm. high net worth investors that are fantastic. I mean, they become family, but... When you're raising money for an asset, as you know,
1: you can't take a dollar from this one and a dollar from that one. Right? Yeah, it's, well, yeah.
2: And certainty of close is just really important. Yeah. And so when you go to them, uh, sometimes you approach them with an investment one month and they're on vacation or they're busy mm-hmm. and the next month, they want to give you a lot of money. And so certainty of close becomes a real problem. So mm-hmm. so to go into this asset a little bit, then we can we, we can talk about, you know, kind of how this asset came to fruition and kind of how we arrived at this thing. It's a half mile from the train, kind of in between Chatham and Madison. It's 118 apartments, 72 bedrooms, of 48, uh, 48 one bedrooms. And it was completely mismanaged. I don't want to get too many of the details, but the previous owner just wasn't taking care of the property. Mm-hmm. That may be an understatement. And so <laughs> yeah. we we kind of used a lot of our construction expertise to upgrade upgrade the apartments. We brought in Graystar and we actually manage the asset alongside Graystar to kind of provide best in class property management to all the tenants because the tenants, you know, your tenants are your clients. I mean, it, mm-hmm. it's, it's one of the most important, you know, you got to treat your tenants like gold, both for referrals, but it's also just, I think, the way to do business. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, you know, the goal is, you know, we're put, we bought the property for thirty five and a quarter million dollars. We are investing about seven million dollars in the, into the asset. I mean, so our renovations are, you know, we kind of pride ourselves in doing top, top notch uh, renovations to kind of, again, give that tenant a best in class living experience. Mm -hmm. We're putting in about between, depending on the, if the previous seller actually put any money into the apartment, we're putting between 15 and $35,000 into the unit. And we invested about $3 million in the exterior, 29 new roofs, beautiful landscaping, exterior facade. We repainted the building to completely Mm -hmm. rebrand, rebrand the asset. I mean, it was previously labeled Chatham Village and Chatham Village had, you know, developed a bad connotation just because of how the previous ownership treated tenants. And so we rebranded Chatham on Main Mm -hmm. because we're on Main Street. And it's been a fantastic success. The goal is to, through construction, to increase rents in a way where kind of unlevered yields, uh, approach kind of a 6%, which which I think is in line with value-add multi. And when you say unlevered
1: yield, uh, could you explain that? That means like a return on cost, right?
2: Yeah. I mean, you know, NOI over kind of your all-in basis to date. So I think in a couple of years, our NOI over that total basis uh, will be around a 6%. Okay.
1: And then... This sounds like an interesting operational challenge in terms of repositioning it. How did you find this deal and what was the process of closing
2: it like? Yeah, it's a great question. So so how we found this deal is, you know, I mean, I think one of, you know, I think real estate is all about relationships. Mm-hmm. And so a previous colleague, a guy who used to work at Stoller uh, named Sid Desai, who now works at Advance, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, he left Stoller, but we, we remain very good friends and and Mm -hmm. we still talk frequently. And I think that's really important. And he introduced me to Steven Feinberg at Everwest and Steven just joined Everwest and we naturally caught up. And I was talking to him about, you know, kind of some of the opportunities that we're looking at. He immediately jumped to this property and we were in the process of acquiring it and about to go look for an LP. Mm -hmm. And now he's our LP and, and they've been a fantastic partner for us. I mean, we had about three ex BlackRock folks and at Everwest I think there's two or three ex BlackRock folks as well. Mm-hmm. And so when I spoke to my my existing investor base, they said, Peter, you couldn't be partnering with with a better company. And it's proven to be mm-hmm. true. You know, we got very lucky because at the time we really didn't have money behind us. We would lock up these deals and then we'd go run around and try to find a partner, which mm-hmm. puts you at an immediate disadvantage. Uh, when you're competing against... Gives
1: you some extra heartburn every week yeah. as well, right?
2: Yeah, but it's also just, it puts you at a really strong disadvantage when you're competing yes. against guys that have discretionary capital and have the ability mm-hmm. to close quickly and put down hard money fairly quickly.
1: So could you explain what GP and LP means and what those roles are in a deal structure?
2: Yeah, yeah. GP, I refer to as kind of general partner and LP is mm-hmm. limited partner. And, and you know typically you'll enter into the structure of the GP will put in kind of five to 15% of the equity and the LP will put in the remainder, whether it's kind of 85 to 95 or 80 to 95%. And the LP typically plays a more passive role and their capital is where they provide most of the value. And the GP is the owner and operator that's responsible for kind of the day-to-day, I would say day-to-day management, day-to-day decision-making. I mean, obviously, when a LP puts in the majority of the capital, they have all major decisions because they've got to be able to protect our capital and the ability to do all sorts of bad things to us if we don't do right to them. But <laughs> but knock on wood, it's gone incredibly well. Good. And then, uh, so you had mentioned that there's a significant amount
1: of capital expenditures that you're putting in to upgrade the units, the exteriors, the site as well. Walk listeners through what they would see if they were going from, say, the the train station downtown to this site, what they would be seeing, what that experience would be. And now it's some of the renovation is still in progress or it's fully complete.
2: It's fully complete. So if you walk from the train station to our site, you would see predominantly older red brick garden style mm-hmm. complexes that, that, some of them have been, have been well-kept and, and some of them haven't. And then we completely painted the exterior brick white. Well, it's not, technically white but it, you know they look white and by redoing by putting on 29 new roofs
1: mm-hmm.
2: new shutters having all the exterior doors this cougar blue we've got recessed lighting all the exteriors now match there's three buildings and two of them are on one side of the street and one, and one is on the other side mm-hmm. and it used to just be discombobulated mm-hmm. and now everything is uniform it just looks really really professional it's really clean the landscaping looks great. It's really well lit. And it looks like a community that that you or I would be proud to live in.
1: And do you find that all of those those elements that you're talking about, the visual appearance, how does that translate to rent and retention of your customers, of your renters?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's been, I can't speak to the actual numbers as if we, you know, because we're not, it'd be hard to compare it if we didn't do it because we always mm-hmm. do it. But The retention is great, the feedback's great, the reviews have been really positive, and the rents are really strong. We're earning some two bedroom rents around $2,600, which I think is a very, very strong rent for an eight foot garden style complex in Chatham. And I think we've got room to kind of continue to push rents and it's become a very coveted property to live in.
1: So I wanna dig into that first iteration of Stellar capital that you mentioned, which was uh, single family homes, central to northern New Jersey, what went well? And perhaps more interestingly, what did not go well?
2: Yeah, I mean, what went well? That's a good question. <laughs> Maybe it's a
1: different way of saying this. Okay, I get it.
2: <laughs> I think what we were doing was interesting and ambitious, mm-hmm. and we were able to attract a lot of talent. And so, you know, again, Kyle Land, you know, came on as an intern, is now a partner and a very, very close friend of mine. And so developed some strong relationships and the overall investment went fine just because we were kind of saved by a tailwind, so to speak, because the, the whole premise was follow, you know, trying to really scale this business, following kind of Waypoint Homes, Colony, Amherst Securities at the time mm-hmm. was buying thousands of homes, Blackstone. And it was never really done before. And it really, no one was doing it in New Jersey. And we came across some really, really strong headwinds and some really, really strong challenges. You know, one of the biggest challenges was just management. You know, we were spread out between you know, Monmouth County to Bergen County and just like anything else, um, without speaking ill of, of anybody, mm-hmm. I think if you're good at something, you typically gravitate towards where the more, more money is and bigger. Right. So if you're a really good property manager you're not gonna be managing single homes. If you're really good at construction, you're gonna be working on, you know, seventy to hundred and twenty thousand dollar homes. And by the way, some general countries are very good at that stuff. But I think from our perspective, we had three people at the time where their background was strictly in, in finance and in, you know, as you mentioned, being an Excel monkey. Mm-hmm. And it was much less of microman, you know, you need you really need to micromanage and have a strong strong focus on management and Mm -hmm. we just didn't we know we didn't there's you know at a a big firm you know you buy a property you hand it off and things just happen and you don't know how they happen but things just happen (laughs) (laughs) and and that's not the case that's not the case at a a small company and when things fall through the cracks things really fall through the cracks yeah and we also were a little bit naive you know you mentioned i was 26 a little bit young to start Mm -hmm. something and so you know, we're a little naive and we you know, you know, one of our first ideas that we had was to kind of go into some of these rougher neighborhoods and really try to distinguish ourselves from the rest of the landlords by being incredibly tenant friendly, mm-hmm. put some more money into these projects and in return they would they would treat us really well. That didn't really happen. But again, it's hard enough to find really good talent to work on these homes without somebody watching you without really any oversight. Mm-hmm. And then it was even harder to find good talent to go into some of the rougher areas of New Jersey to do this stuff because, you know, our general conductors, you know, they would constantly be assaulted. Their tools would be stolen frequently. There'd be break-ins th- two three times a week at our properties. We'd, you know, people would steal copper and we have to go in and deal with police. And it was one problem after another, mm-hmm. It just took up an enormous amount of my time. Where we said, you know, we took a step back and said, kind of, what are we really good at? Mm-hmm. What does our skill set kind of cater us or, you know, will, you know lead us to doing, what we, you know, to, to some success? And it was larger multifamily assets and being more of an investment professional mm-hmm. than a micromanager.
1: So, to give people a frame of reference, the counties that that had mentioned in terms like Monmouth County to Bergen County. New Jersey is a relatively small state, but that distance could be anywhere from one hour to maybe four hours, depending on traffic. So the ability to be able to go across the garden state is one thing that requires a lot of planning and preparation. That's why they, they function as relatively different markets, the different parts of New Jersey. And uh, you mentioned this idea of looking for houses into the rougher neighborhoods that made me think of when my family emigrated to the United States, uh, the golden rule that my parents always had is they wanted to buy the worst house in the best neighborhood. That way they didn't have to deal with any of that agita that
2: you were just talking about. Yeah, no, I mean, it's you're spot on. I mean, you know, I remember, you know, we talked briefly before this podcast, but mm-hmm. one of my previous colleagues was held up at gunpoint mm-hmm. and they stole my car in newark and by the way i think newark is a fantastic city mm-hmm. and there's a lot going for it and, and i think newark will do quite well in the next five to ten years but there are still parts of newark you know maybe close to irvington or on the southwest side that that still can remain you know, very rough and, and this was at 1 p.m and it was 70 degrees and it was sunny outside it's not like we were hanging out there at eight o'clock at night but no we took a step back and you know really focused on kind of larger value add multi we developed Couple of larger buildings, one in particular in Morristown. Mm-hmm. That,
1: so Morristown's another large town, city, historic, nice downtown, northern Jersey. That's basically the idea, right?
2: That is the idea. I mean, it's about an hour west of Manhattan. It's about 15 minutes west of Chatham. You know, it's you know, people say it's Hoboken West. It's it's the second people call. <laughs> I think it was this...
1: people call Hoboken Brooklyn West as well. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. It, it's got a fantastic. Fantastic downtown, very vibrant. Yeah. If you live in Chad or Madison or any of those towns, you know, usually go into Morristown to eat, drink, socialize. There's also a lot of businesses that are in Morristown. And so it really, a lot of the action circles around what's called the Morristown Green. Mm-hmm. And our project is about 50, 60 yards from the green.
1: So that was one of the larger projects that you've done. And talk to us about some of the other developments that you've worked on over the past couple of years?
2: The other developments we've worked on are relatively small. You know, we've got one that we're trying to get off the ground in Chatham that we've got two partners on that are are both Mm -hmm. fantastic partners, both Vertical and KRE. We had one in South Orange that we just couldn't get to work. We worked with the town for about five years. We were trying to develop student housing about three Mm -hmm. blocks from the downtown. And our main focus is value-add large commercial properties. And and Morristown was a very large property for us. I mean, Morristown Mm -hmm. was about 80,000 feet, 54 luxury apartments, over about 20,000 feet of commercial space. It took all the energy out of me to to kind of continue (laughs) to do ground-up development deals in northern New Jersey.
1: So let me ask this. So you said it took you five years to try to get through approval. So I'm a city planning commissioner in Hoboken, so I know exactly what you're talking about. But for listeners that don't, what happens over five years to still get to a no? Like, what is happening?
2: Yeah, I mean, that's that's a great question. As you know, probably better than I do, you know, development's funny because to a lot of folks, when they say, oh, you're a real estate developer, they immediately think of the sexy renderings these amazing construction projects, you being or Donald Trump, one of those three yeah, or, or Donald Trump yeah, without getting into politics and, and you being built, pull all the strings and having all these guys work for you. And then you just make all this money. And it just couldn't be farther from the truth. I mean, at least in our experience being in development, it's essentially like being in politics. Mm-hmm. You know, so much of your time and effort is behind the scenes working with city planners, city officials, getting your project approved i mean nothing in new jersey unlike new york city nothing in new jersey is as of right even if you have the necessary zoning you still have to go in front of the planning board so they approve your design
1: and what kind of i'll just add one thing is what makes this so complex is that there's 554 different municipalities in new jersey which is like the size of like This, that's how big it is. Yeah. And each of them has their own planning commission, their own zoning commission, and their own city council or Equivalent Town Council.
2: No, you're absolutely right. And they've got their own agenda. And they've got developers that they like for one reason or another. They've got some developers they don't like for one reason or another. (laughs) And then they've got their own agenda besides putting developers and and actually approving developments. I mean they've got Mm -hmm. and they also have to run a town, which isn't easy. And and so for that project, we ended up getting a 30-year pilot, which is, you know, a payment in lieu of taxes. Mm-hmm. So New Jersey, at you know, the, the fiscal state of New Jersey, I don't want it to go into too much, but, but but it isn't the rosiest picture. And so, you know, people say that people can move and you're seeing a lot of movement to mm-hmm. kind of some of these sunbelt areas in the sunbelt and, and business can... I'm actually
1: surprised this year that New Jersey didn't lose a congressional seat.
2: Yeah, yeah, and so and businesses can also move as you kind of read the news, you know, these companies moving out of New York and California to tax friendlier states, mm-hmm. but buildings can't move, and so historically, when, when towns and and states have gotten in trouble, you know, one of the first things they do is they look at property tax for large commercial assets, and they can go through what's called a reval or revaluation process, mm-hmm. and so a thirty year pilot essentially locks our taxes in as a percentage of our effective gross revenue. And there's some step ups, but it starts at about eleven and a quarter percent. And so very, very important, you know, for us because taxes could double or even triple. And just so so just knowing having certainty in, in, in what your cash flows look like was worth going back and forth to the town over over this pilot for a substantial amount of time. And also, you know, you are an architect, mm-hmm. but they like to play architects and they are not architects. Okay. (laughs) And they like to play designer and they are not designers. And they really have with every tweak of the design and every tweak of the actual plan Mm -hmm. costs can greatly change one way or another. Mm -hmm. And they don't really care about your costs. And so they'll change things like they made us vent everything out to the, the roof. And whereas opposed to if you were a, Exterior wall, right? That's the cheaper way. Rather than everything. Exterior up. wall with you know either PTAC units or Magic yeah. Packs, but they had us vent everything out to the roof. And this is one of, uh, change among many that's just mm-hmm. going to continue to add to our costs and our bottom line.
1: Was that because of noise or because of perceived quality of not having heating units on
2: through the wall, like the visual? No, pure visual aesthetic. <laughs> Yeah. Pure visual aesthetic. They, you know, they didn't want to see it and the building's beautiful. And, and by um, the way, I think, you know, I think I would agree that, that buildings without these small louvers, you know, do look better, but I don't think it's that big of a change. And, but it, it was just, you know, you've got to close or to be yeah. competitive, you've got to close in these properties really yes. and take on a lot of risk. And then you're kind of at the town's mercy, so mercy. to speak, on on how they end up getting designed and, for you know our investors i think will do fine mm-hmm. but when you're working for you know when, when you're working on a project for five six years there's only so many fees and promote you can take before <laughs> the investors don't do well and yes. so you're, you're really you're, you know us as a business
1: yeah we're
2: really not making that much money i mean if you factor in all the years and, and, and all the time that we put into it uh-huh. and so a much more scalable model for us was by existing fix existing Mm -hmm. either through the unit renovations or through property management or through exterior renovations and buy build relationships with fantastic institutional partners and kind of continue to keep moving. And we started to look at growth markets. And what we found was when we looked at these growth markets, you know, we kind of took a step back and and said, are we the best sponsor to be buying these deals Mm -hmm. in say Tampa, Florida? And we, we really came to the resolution that we're not, and so we said, "Okay, how do we get exposure to these markets without actually buying these properties outright?" And we started this preferred equity and mezzanine loan platform, mm-hmm. where we kind of found this nuanced space between kind of four to you know four million to fifteen million dollars in the capital stack, uh, or about sixty five percent to eighty five percent of the capital stack, mm-hmm. where you could earn value at equity like returns by partnering with fantastic local sponsors and not taking on nearly as much risk because you obviously got all the common equity in front of you. And so that's really where this preferred equity and mess platform, how it started because we originally wanted to invest our own money there. And, you know, we just didn't, it would be the equivalent of somebody from Florida investing in Chatham where we own mm-hmm. six properties and, you know, we own, you know, we know almost every seller and every owner, you know, we know the town pretty well. And I just don't know how well they'd be able to compete with us.
1: So you mentioned preferred equity and mezzanine capital stack. Could you explain what those terms mean in terms of the the financing of the deal?
2: Yeah. So when you buy a deal, a lot of the sponsors that we partner with that we've given preferred equity and mezz to, will buy a deal with 65% debt and 35% of their own equity. So let's just call Mm -hmm. it a hundred million dollar deal. They -hmm. get, they go to the bank, they get a $65 million loan from the bank and they put in $35 million of their own equity. And a lot of sponsors either, Don't want to put in $35 million in equity and want to leverage that capital, or they don't have it. Mm -hmm. And so we'll come in and say, you know, on top of the 65% senior loan, we'll give you an additional 15 to 20%. So we'll give you an additional 15 to 20 million dollars at obviously a higher rate than the senior loan because Mm -hmm. it's a much riskier place in the capital stack. And they can put in the remainder. And as long as they abide by their business plan and Mm -hmm. they abide by our agreement, it's essentially a second loan. I mean, I mm-hmm. mean to simplify things, it's essentially a second loan where we can earn, you know, 10 to 12% of our money in deals that I don't think have a lot of downside. And you had mentioned growth markets like Tampa. Could
1: you talk about the metric or the criteria that you use to determine the uh, markets that you want to invest in through this platform and what some of those like are just across the country?
2: Yeah, sure. I mean, I'll keep it very high level. But High level, we look at meds and eds, and we look at where people are moving, and we look at that means hospitals and universities, meds correct? And eds. <laughs> correct. So real that estate has the... its whole like lingo thing. Correct. Right? <laughs> right. Sorry, and and I mean hospitals and universities, they are economic engines mm-hmm. and huge
1: stabilizers of value.
2: Correct. And when the economy does really well or does really poorly, mm-hmm. these universities and hospitals, uh, they still are a massive employment center. Mm-hmm. We also look at where people are moving, and we also look at kind of areas in which rents have quote-unquote room to run. Mm -hmm. And so we really like parts of Florida, whether that's Tampa, Orlando, Jacksonville. Mm -hmm. We love the Carolinas, the Research Triangle. We love Columbus. But I think more important, at least for us than the location, is who the actual sponsor is. 100%. So, So much, when we underwrite a deal, we underwrite the sponsor, the sponsor, the sponsor, and then it's the actual deal itself, which mm-hmm. will one of the facets of the deal will include the location. I mean, so much of real estate I've come to understand is about relationships mm-hmm. and it's about trust. And if you can find really good sponsors, I would much rather do a deal with a really good sponsor in, in an awful location mm-hmm. than vice versa. And it just makes doing business so much easier. I, you know, we've encountered people, especially in the single family and small multifamily phase of our business, we've encountered some less than honest people, I would say. And it just makes doing business much, much more complicated. You're constantly looking over your shoulder. You're constantly wondering if you're getting mistreated. Mm -hmm. And and if you can find really good, honest sponsors, you've got to deal with things that you should have to deal with, which is the market and which is actually the deal itself. And you shouldn't Mm -hmm. have to worry about any sponsor risks. Mm -hmm. And so, so that's really our focus. And we do incredibly heavy background checks. We do incredibly heavy reference checks. We'll meet with these sponsors. We'll fly down to these locations multiple times. We'll meet with their colleagues. We'll have interviews. And we really, really get to know these people and we become friends with them. And an ideal scenario, these investment opportunities come from existing relationships. And a lot of them have, and we're doing a deal right now with a former partner at a firm that I was at. I don't want to say the firm, but the firm that one of the partners was at. Sure. And he's been a friend of mine for, for 20 years. He's a fantastic guy. He's brilliant. And I would almost, I mean, almost, I would almost give him money blind because I, I trust him that much. The deal happens to be a really, really attractive deal mm-hmm. in the Carolinas, but we really have a strong focus on people and yeah, the sponsor. I think what you're
1: describing in terms of the sponsor being such a critical part of these types of repositioning deals uh, is very similar to the way that early stage venture capital investing happens. since we, we just came through a $2 million seed financing round for Redist, my technology company. And as the, the conversations that we had uh, in a similar way, we <laughs> talked to 200 people to get 20 people to invest. That's just the way it works. Sure. Uh, similar to real estate, but the conversations always began with, the sponsors or the, the founders, of the firm, then you talk about the meat potatoes, the business, and then to really close the deal and make it happen. It always comes back to the conversation about the sponsors and are they the right ones to be doing this startup technology company, or are they the right ones to be doing this uh, repositioning of a huge asset next to Duke or UNC or anywhere else in the Carolines?
2: A hundred percent. And for you and, and for us too, just like they're looking at you as a sponsor and doing heavy mm-hmm. background checks. I mean, their partnership is really important for you because very you're a really good partner. You know, we we have a strong preference, and I know a lot of people don't. A lot of people want a blank check and they want their partners to just never call them, and we're, we're the opposite. And I think yeah. you're the opposite too, where we really want active partners, which means people that we can kind of use as a sounding board people that will help grow our business Mm -hmm. people that will go out of their way to make introductions for us if we do right by them if we do well for them because that's that's how we've grown the past and their capital is usually a little bit more expensive Mm -hmm. to me it's the best trade-off you can possibly make and so i think valuating the sponsor i mean again it kind of goes goes both ways
1: Yeah, I think that's that's a huge that's probably the biggest piece of advice that I would have to anyone that is getting started as a developer is looking for this long term in terms of building relationships, whether you're talking about in the beginning of the conversation on Chatham and Maine in terms of the renters, this idea of seeing the renters. Uh, not as annoyances, but as like the, the lifeblood of your business sure. and treating them in an honest, direct way in terms of your contractors and people that are doing the work for you to make sure that your beautiful building is going to be beautiful and functional and everything else and treating them honestly. And then in terms of your investors, uh, finding the right partners that treat you well, but also that you make sure that you treat them exceedingly well and provide them any information, anything that they need. Uh, and I think that might end up taking a longer path to get started, but I think that's a much stronger foundation to be on when an economy takes a swing in the wrong direction as it did, uh, say, last year.
2: Sure. You said it really well, and I completely agree with you.
1: So, cool. What do you see the next five years of your business being?
2: Yeah, it's it's another great question. So I think we're going to continue to expand on our two businesses, which Mm -hmm. is investing in preferred equity and and mezzanine loans, Mm -hmm. in growth markets across the country with experienced sponsors. Mm -hmm. We are in the process right now. We're about to start the next week or two. We're about to go out and try to raise, you know, we raised a $10 million fund initially Mm -hmm. through co-invest capital. We've ended up investing a little bit over $20 million Mm -hmm. and we're targeting on the second raise somewhere around $50 million. Mm -hmm. And so in the next five years, you know, our hope is, go from $50 million to potentially a hundred or $150 million and kind of continue to grow those funds. As long as we can find, continue to find attractive deals that provide really strong risk adjusted returns to our investors in those funds. Mm -hmm. And then the second business is to actually be the sponsor ourselves and to own and operate large institutional size multifamily deals. And, Mm -hmm. What we did was a couple of weeks ago, we entered into a partnership with a large family office where they would backstop debt and equity so we could close cash and we can close with certainty, which sellers really appreciate. And the idea is to have Chatham on Maine, which is you know total capitalization on $43 million, mm-hmm. have that be the first of many deals that we do in Northern Jersey. Mm-hmm. And I think for the next five years, if we're successful in... Owning and operating kind of three four assets in New Jersey, I would love to expand Stolar into other markets, whether that's parts of the Carolinas, whether that's Columbus, whether that's parts of Florida. Mm-hmm. And I think the only way for me to do that because JBG was JBG was hyper focused on being local, and so that mm-hmm. always resonated with me.
1: You're moving to Durham. That's what's happening,
2: right? Or hiring, <laughs> or you know, I hope my wife doesn't listen to this podcast. I don't think, <laughs> but or we'd hire somebody to kind of be our boots on the ground in Durham. And I would fly there once a week or once every other week Mm -hmm. and try to expand and own and operate multifamily in those areas.
1: There is also this very contrarian idea is that Florida, Texas, Arizona, North Carolina, Georgia, everyone and their mom is looking for deals there. I feel there is this opportunity that can exist when everyone is running this way that you look this way and even in expensive states that say for example you mentioned high tax is an issue with new jersey losing population new york lost a congressional seat uh, and other northeastern states have lost congressional seats because of decline of population i still think that those present opportunities if you're able to find and move in and around the issues that exist there and i think that's probably the another piece of advice that i'd have for someone getting started is when people are running this way perhaps run this way and see what see what's there maybe there's something
2: no you're absolutely right and don't get me wrong i think there's a lot of potential in mm-hmm. northern new jersey and there's a lot yep. of potential in new york city mm-hmm. but i think you've got to be local because
1: yeah that is the
2: key yeah a lot of the risks and uh, potential potholes are really only seen by people that are kind of living and breathing in the market mm-hmm. themselves, which is 100%. which is why I don't want to be the foreigner, so to speak. In, <laughs> the carpet bagger,
1: I think that's expression. Yes.
2: <laughs> in Durham, I, if if we end up investing there, I want a strong presence there because I think being local is just such an advantage. And these markets are so competitive that you need to be local, I think, to be able to compete. At least we do. At least that's our strong feeling.
1: Excellent. I think you have an incredibly bright future ahead of you in terms of balancing things in your backyard here with high growth opportunities elsewhere. Thanks for joining me today on American Building. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, Subscribe on your favorite listening app, and don't forget to rate and review. And friends, I've teamed up with writers for the New York Times and Dwell magazine to launch a digital media platform to tell the fascinating stories of the impact developers and capital providers I work with at Commonplace. Check it out at commonplace.us.